This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to episode nine of season two, correct? Episode nine of season two of the Human Things Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Human Things Podcast. This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Today, today is going to be something like opposite day for us. And what I mean by that is that I spend and have spent uh, as a student of Greg Kokel, Scott Klusendorf, uh, my mentor and friend, a, a most of my career in this area talking about this point. When I talk about abortion, the moral case against abortion, I talk about the unborn. What is the unborn? Is the unborn, is the fetus or the embryo one of us? Is it a full member of the human family? And the answer to that question will determine what we're allowed to do to it. Can we kill them? What are they? Can we kill it? What is it? And I have said multiple times, I've said this on panels, I've said this in platform speeches, I've said this at banquets, I've said this at conferences, that there's a lot of things that are wrong about abortion. Abortion is a great wrong, and as a result of it, there's a lot of things wrong about it. But there's one reason why abortion is morally wrong, because it's the unjust taking of an innocent human life. If the unborn are one of us, then the unjust destruction of human life is the reason that abortion is wrong. And the reason I say that is because not being an expert on all those other areas, because you can't, you just can't be an expert on everything. You can't spend your life. I think it was GK Chesterton that wrote and eugenics and other evils that you can't be a specialist on the universe. It's not possible to be an expert on everything. You have to specialize on one thing. And so I spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about this one thing, and I set aside a lot of other things. So if you want to ask me about things like abortion and breast cancer link, abortion and depression, abor all, any of these other things that people will talk about, I would say you should probably talk to people who have experience in that area of this study. I don't. It's not my thing. It's not what I spend all my time focused on. So why, that's why I say today is opposite day, because today we're going to be talking about this book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. I want to talk about this book, uh, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, uh, because I, I read it recently. I reached out to the author, as always, if I ever read a book that I want to talk about, the first thing that I do after reading it is I reach out to the authors and say, would you like to come on and talk? <laughs> I'm stunned when any of them say yes. Uh, and I'm so grateful. So when you have somebody like Ben Mitchell or you have somebody like uh, Christopher Tollefson uh, or any of the guests that we've had on this show, you have these people who are willing to say yes and to come on this show and talk to me. That's wonderful, but it's not the norm. It's, it's oftentimes difficult to get these authors to come on and talk about their work for a lot of reasons and good reasons for them. Not the least of which is why would they waste their time talking to me? But so let's, but what I want to do is I want to talk about this since I don't have the authors here to frame the three things. I'm going to have to try to do that as best I can. I don't think I'm going to be able to stick to three things, but I'll try. I'm going to try really hard to focus on three things about this book. What I won't do when talking about a book on the podcast is tell you everything that the book says. Why? Well, because it's their property and, and I want you to buy it. 
This is, this is an interesting resource to have at your house. And it's making the case that abortion is tearing us apart, that it's harming everything that it touches. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, we remain a Barbie free zone. We also are officially a Taylor Swift free zone. We will not be discussing her at all. I, I've, I've never understood the fascination with her, but I don't, I don't dislike people. I don't, I don't blame people who do or feel any enmity towards people who love her. Love what you love, man. I, I got that from my grandfather in the sense of if there is something that you like that, you know, obviously not immoral things. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about or if there's something that you have a passion for, uh, start. Yeah. Like JD has a passion for star Wars on his desk that I'm looking at that you can't see. He has a Yoda cup and a man, a Mandalorian coffee cup, both right next to each other because he can't drink enough star Wars coffee apparently. And he's usually oftentimes wearing an interesting star Wars shirt. By the way, his shirts are awesome. Uh, I love him, and I have told him I can't let my son know where he gets them from because they look kind of like Aloha shirts uh, or Hawaiian shirts, but they have Star Wars stuff embedded in them instead of the traditional Aloha patterns on them. Uh, so love what you love, right? There was a period of my time when I, when I was younger that I loved professional wrestling. I don't have the slightest idea why. And people would ask me. They would say, you know it's fake. Everything you like is fake too. I mean, it's not like the TV shows you watch at night or a bunch of documentaries. And a lot of documentaries are fake, by the way. So it, it's it's not a question of fake. It's a question of what you like. And I enjoyed for one to, for a period in time uh, wrestling. Uh, so if you love Taylor Swift, love Taylor Swift. We're just not going to talk about her here because it's just not a particular interest to me. What I do want to talk about uh, for really quickly, this this is one thing that I think is an important thing I want to talk about because I have, I had somebody contact me about Israel and Hamas. And I think that the reason they were contacting me was because my guess is that sometimes silence is misunderstood. And so since I'm not the only thing I have said publicly about the whole thing uh, is, is two things. Number one, I made a post immediately after the Hamas, Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel, where I said Israel's war prey on, on Facebook, I believe. And then I was doing a private Zoom call, which, you know, there's no such thing as private, so it could get aired. I don't know. And I was talking about just war theory, and I was talking about the responsibility of those people who are waging just war to minimize civilian casualties. And I was saying that Israel has a tradition of before or prior to attacking a particular area, warning them, civilians, to clear out. Uh, it's difficult because... You know, when you're talking about West Bank or Gaza, particularly Gaza in this particular case, the the people they're trying to get to are under the people that they're trying not to hurt or don't want to hurt or have warned to leave. A hiding in cave system underneath or tunnel systems underneath. Uh, oftentimes putting their things that they know that are that are most valuable in places that they know that would probably discourage attack. Uh, so I said, in, in an effort for anyone to make an effort to fight a just war, if you believe such a thing as a just war exists, the responsibility of waging a just war requires you to minimize civilian casualties. And if you are not doing that, you're not waging a just war. Now, that was not condemnation about anything. But I want to say this. This is why I haven't said anything about it, because it was curious. Number one, one question I got from somebody was, doesn't God require us to speak about Israel 
because Israel is a special place. So I, I have friends that believe that. I have friends that don't. Here's what I would say. I would ask, why does God require that of us? And they said, because of protected, you know, God wants us to protect Israel. I did say this to the, the, that gentleman. I said, I'm sorting through everything like anybody else who doesn't know what's going on. And there's a lot of information coming from a lot of different places. And my knee-jerk reaction is obviously to support Israel uh, because I don't understand what people mean when they say, you know, when you, you went into people's homes and killed family members in front of other family members and killed babies, and they say, well, there's context. No, there's, there is no context to that. That, 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 does, that does not get context. There is nothing you can do to me to justify me going into the home of a civilian who is not uh, actively uh, act as a participant in war and murder their family in front of them. That just does not get context. And if you're, if you're running around saying there's context to that, then you're hopeless. I mean, you really need to reevaluate how you understand the moral, you know, our moral duties and responsibilities to other human beings. Is there context to conflict? Of course there is. Is there context for that? No, that's just plain evil, bro. That's just dumb. That is just flat out unadulterated as evil as we get as human beings. Uh, and, and nothing justifies that. There is nothing that you can do that provides moral cover for that. Okay. So setting that aside, my friend was saying this. He said, in some sense or another, God requires me speaking about Israel to protect Israel. And I told my friend, God can protect Israel whatever Jay does, and he will do whatever he's going to do without Jay saying anything or doing anything at all. Now, Jay is required, I believe, I am required when I see evil to speak up. I don't see a world that's lacking in people speaking up about the evil of what Hamas has done, so I didn't feel it was necessary for me to run around doing it as well. I don't, I don't need to check in. For me, I mean, that's just not a thing I morally do. I don't, I don't morally check in. I don't, I don't go online and say, okay, this is bad. I need to check in on one side or another. It's just not my style. One of the reasons is, is because it frustrates me when I see people do it all the time. I have actually reached out to people before and had conversations with them. And I said, I think it would do well for your ministry if you didn't feel it was necessary to comment about everything that happens in the news. That every, there is, you, you act as if the world is waiting for you to say your side of whatever has just happened. And I'm telling you, they're not. And in order to win the race, to say it early enough so that people might pass your post along, you're going to have to act without full information. And this goes back to why I haven't said anything. I was reading Ed, um, Edmund Burke's writings on the French Revolution. And very early on, Edmund Burke was asked, why haven't you talked about this? Celebrated it. Whatever. And his response was, I'm not even sure what's happened yet, right? It's very early, too early to be saying it's a good thing. And the reign of terror obviously demonstrated that Edmund Burke was correct in withholding his judgment and not jumping on board early with this French revolution and the overthrowing of the monarchy. Many things that he would have been in some way or another, as far as in pure ideological sense, amenable to or, or agreeable to, or maybe supportive of, but he said, there's just not enough information yet about what's actually happening there. So I'm not going to give approval or disapproval when I don't have the slightest idea what's actually happening yet. I did see that Israel recently said that they are going to be releasing, they have, as they have waged their campaign, they have captured body cams uh, that were used during the day of the attack. And that they said that they are amassing evidence by collecting as much of that as they can so that they can then release it to the world because they've been accused of lying. 
about the things that happened that day so that they have evidence, video evidence of those things happening. All I'm saying from my perspective to my friends when they called me and said, Why, what's with your silence, basically? I said, I'm waiting, man. I'm waiting to see. Because the world doesn't need Jay to sort this out for them. What I have to say about it is just pointless. In every way that what they've done is deeply evil, I'm talking about Hamas at this point, that speaks for itself. If you need me to tell you that these things are evil, then you already are so insensitive to good and evil that I don't understand what me saying that to you is going to do for you. And a lot of the things I hear from the other side of things are, I'm just waiting. Let's just put it that way. And in rushing to either side, I think in this particular arena does no good for anybody because in the reality, and this is something that I got from, um, Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death, right? He said, we, he talked about non-actionable information and, and the, the problem with the idea that I am, a, I have available to me and the way that I do immediately, the things that are going on, uh, whether things are going on with Armenia, whether things are going on with Israel, whether things are going on with Russia and the Ukraine, I have this immediate knowledge of what's going on in these places all around the world. And then in addition to that, feel an immediate pressure to respond to those things. And Neil Postman back way back in the seventies, when he wrote amusing ourselves to death, he said, there was no reason for you to respond to those things. Why? Because there is nothing you can do about them. Your main responsibility, and we talked about this on the show with Jeffrey Brillbro, we were talking about the news. Your main responsibility is your community. Be good to the people next door to you. And don't allow yourself to be dragged in uh, to hatred and anger over things that, especially that you don't understand. You could not possibly understand what's going on yet. Even the eight people in the middle of it don't understand what's going on yet. The same way we didn't understand what was happening on 9-11. And it took time for us to gather the information to, to figure out who and what were our enemies specifically, how we were going to do things. I see just constant reports of things. And it's not lost on me that even last night there was a shooting in, was it Minnesota? Where was it? Maine. Maine. That's right. Maine. Uh, a mass shooting. And it, as the information is coming out, 16 people are dead, 22 people are dead, 50 people are injured, 60 people have been injured. It's a massacre. And, and there's no way for us to know what actually happened until we have time to gather that information. So sometimes I look for a peace in Christ that is built out of humility. This is how I advise people to respond to the news oftentimes. You just don't. Just be humble for a moment and realize the world doesn't need you to give your view on this right now. It needs to just let the people who are, because guess what? That's so funny to me when I see people like saying negative things about Vladimir Putin online, right? Like on Twitter where they'll post jokes about him or they'll say something ugly about him. Like condemning him is going to stop him from doing anything he's going to do. Like you're Guess even on a lower level, I see people post things about Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders has gone on television and said he doesn't care what anybody else thinks about him. So why are you still posting about him? You're not doing it for him. You're not going to change him. He doesn't care. He's not looking. He's not paying any attention to you. He's not responding to you. You have no impact on him whatsoever. You're doing it so that you can make a show out of talking about Deion Sanders. Well, uh, so th th in this age where there's a desperation to declare ourselves, I have tried my best to not be somebody who feels it necessary to constantly declare myself. I'll tell you what I think. I mean, when people contact me and say, what do you think? 
And I did. When one of my friends contacted me, in addition to all the other stuff, I said, God doesn't need me to defend Israel. My statements on social media will not help whether or not God decides to defend Israel. I did one time talk to somebody that was involved in the Six Days War, and they were they were describing things that happened in Israel. And he was making the case to me that God intervened on that, that it wasn't just the military expertise of Israel, but that there were strange things happening, Arab pilots shooting each other down, trouble with tanks uh, on the, as they advanced on uh, Israel, that there were things that happened that were inexplicable under normal rules of engagement or uh, military history that he said indicated that there was more operating on the battlefield that day. Look, I don't know if that's true or not. This guy told me that. But what I took from that is if God wants to defend Israel, he doesn't need me to do it. And if if what my friends believe that Israel is special, and I again, I'm not, I don't know what to think about this other than what God has said about Israel in the Bible, but it's difficult for me to parse through because I have so many different friends that take different positions on this. But what I do know is if it's still true that Israel is special to God, then God is going to defend Israel no matter what I put on Facebook. And if God decides to defend Israel, there ain't anything anybody else is going to be able to do. So there, that is the short and sweet answer that of my response to the reason why I don't say, and I took a similar stance on a lot of things in this world where you're just not going to see me say anything unless there's just clear evidence of something that happened. And, And I think there's a good reason, by the way, to behave this way. Let's take the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, just as a brief example. And I think we've talked about this before in this show. Pulse nightclub was immediately understood as a vicious and hateful murderous attack on the homosexual community that it was aimed at and intended to destroy a group of people because of their homosexual behavior, which on its face, if that is what happened is deeply evil, deeply, deeply evil. And because of this immediate understanding of what happened, People had immediate responses and reactions and even cast others as villains, if that makes sense. Anybody who's spoken out against homosexuality, anybody holding a traditional view is now participating in this dangerous, dangerous worldview that has fed this person to go and do this terrible thing. Except a year later, I remember reading that the guy who attacked the Pulse nightclub initially went to downtown Disney now called Disney Springs at one time called what was it before that it was pleasure Island. Um, he went down to there and he was going to, his first instinct was he was going to kill a lot of people there, but they have great security there. And he determined that he wouldn't be able to have success killing a lot of people there. So he got into a cab and said, take me to some place with a lot of people. And the guy took him to the pulse nightclub and he walked in and had no idea who he was. It wasn't aimed at the homosexual community. Now, that doesn't mean that the pain felt by the homosexual community is any less because it was, it was a vicious and murderous attack where the members of their community bore the brunt of it. But it does change our understanding of it if that's true. It wasn't inspired by hatred for the homosexuals. It was inspired by hatred for the West or for people or for the hatred of himself for the person doing it or whatever is broken in this person. I've heard, I think Dennis Prager called human tornadoes. These people that just go off and kill. The point is that if that second story is the truth, then all of the things that we reacted to immediately were not true. 
And we were having all of this emotion and seeking all of this recompense and blaming people and anger and a lot of the things that were generated and aimed in specific directions were misaimed. Because we just didn't know. And I've actually lived through a news story before where something terrible happened. I don't want to get into the details of it here because it's just not important. But what I can tell you was interesting to have actually living through that experience where somebody that you know is suddenly the focus of news and a lot of news. Every single major uh, network in the city of Atlanta was leading talking about my friend. And so much of what they were saying was wrong as they were trying to gather information. Why? Because the urgency to say something is intention with the time that it takes to determine the truth of what happened. And we live in a world where we feel the urgency to say and say and say, as opposed to being able to be patient and try our best to determine the truth of what's going on in the world around us. I don't say as much as other people say online because I just don't think what I have to say matters about a lot of things. And in the places where I think it probably does, I just feel like it's dangerous to start talking before you actually know what you're talking about. And this is not a position that I hold lightly. And I will say I have lost friends over this. I've had friends that have been outraged with me because I wouldn't speak publicly about something they wanted me to speak publicly about. And they've contacted me, yelled at me, screamed at me, cussed me out on the phone. Why aren't you talking? I don't have any idea what you want me to talk about. They would tell me what they know. It's like, is that true? Did that happen the way that you just related to me? Because if that actually happened, then that's terrible. But we have a track record of saying that these things happened and then finding out they did not happen at all or that they didn't happen the way that we were told. And I just want to wait. That's all I'm asking for is the, the freedom to wait and to see what actually is unfolding and what's going on. And I'll point to an area of this because uh, you might hear this and think that I'm, I am trying to put things in context. That's not entirely true. What, one point where I would say that I think that this is, is see, when so many people, immediate response to what happened on that terrorist day, that terrorist attack on Israel, was to immediately get angry about a genocide that Israel was about to perform against a people before they'd even done anything. Israel was being condemned for acts of genocide before Israel had done anything. Had they even responded yet, they were already being accused of genocide. That's madness. You're mad at Israel for a response that they haven't had, and you haven't even given these people the time to grieve what's happened to them. I mean, do you remember how awful it was? If you were as old as I am, do you remember how awful it was after 9-11? There was time. We just needed time, man. It was raw. The whole country was just raw as we were trying to process what happened. We need time. And yet, there are people who get angry at the people being attacked before they even have a chance to measure a response. So there. Why say nothing sometimes? Because sometimes saying nothing is the best thing that you can contribute to the world around you. Sometimes your silence on an issue is a gift to the rest of the world. Just you know, try to be humble. Just don't fall into this trap of thinking that everything that we have to say about something is so important that we better get out there and say it early. It needs to be shareable. Ugh, who cares? Okay, on, on a less serious note, moving on from all of that, I don't even know where that came from, man. That's just That was just completely and totally, JD's like, 
<laughs> Lord. All right. So here's another thing. Um, this is more light. This is something we started to talk about before we started filming. And I said, let's just hold it. I'll talk about it on the, on the podcast. It was a conversation I was having with somebody recently. So what we were talking about was, um, what JD and I were discussing, it started with, with it's a small world, right? Is that where, how it got started? We're discussing it's a small world and my love for it's a small world. I love that ride. And I will not abide people being ugly about it's a small world. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're It's a small world after all. And one of the points that I made, because we were talking about it lasting, whether or not it will last, um, is that the artists behind that original Disney build. When you're talking about Disneyland and Disney World, they were they were high level songwriters, high level artists. Uh, and one of my favorite is the artist behind It's a Small World, Mary Blair. Uh, you, it's not just It's a Small World. If you go to the Contemporary and you see the huge mural of the Contemporary with the five-legged goat on it, that's also Mary Blair. If you see the the cups that they sell, that they put the soda in, they have a Mary Blair design on them. I just like Mary Blair as an artist. And It's a Small World exists then as this incredible uh, uh, work of art from Mary Blair with music I, I, I can't remember the guy who wrote it's a small world um, just died recently, Robert Sherman, right? Uh, so Robert Sherman was the writer. So you have these great, these were great artists and the, the level that they were, they were seeking to operate on was different than the level that you see people trying to operate today. There wasn't necessarily the cash component, the money component. Is it profitable? Is it shareable? All of the different things that we think about in art today. This was just Mary Blair doing her best to come up with an artistic rendition of a world uniting through children and the shared desire of children to, to experience play across cultures, across races, across nations. What a beautiful thing. What a strange thing to be cynical about in the world around us today. And Robert Sherman writing the music. So so here's the thing, though. This, this leads to a conversation I had last week. Somebody asked me, why do you think all these live-action Disney movies are so terrible? I love that because it assumes that they are, and they almost all are. I, I will give, I have repeatedly said, I think Cinderella, uh, directed by Kenneth Branagh, should, should be set aside and not included in our evaluation of the live action Disney movies. Cause I think it, it, it stands alone as a lovely work of art that gets to the heart of the Cinderella story in a new way and, and add stuff to it. And it's just, I think it's a beautiful story, beautiful. And, and probably because its entire focus is on uh, have courage and be kind. That, that is the, the thesis of the movie, have courage and be kind in the face of everything. And so we understand Cinderella then through that lens. Why was she the way that she was, getting the treatment that she was getting from her evil stepmother and stepsisters because she had been taught by her parents whom she loved have courage and be kind. And she intended to carry that through. And it's a, so the original, so the Cinderella was, I think is a beautiful story. Almost everything else has been garbage has just been garbage. Why? And here's where I think it's, it's, um, 
gets back to what I was talking about, about the artists that were making Disney world versus the artists who are running it today. When you talk about the people who made, let's go back to, um, little mermaid, right? Let's talk about the people behind. So you had Jeffrey Katzenberg was the head of the studio with little mermaid, right? Uh, and then he wants to make something. Michael Eisner is running Disney at this point. Michael Eisner has a standard for Disney that he expects everything to live up to. Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, who goes on to make the animation department at DreamWorks when he leaves to go with uh, Steven Spielberg and David Geffen to open up DreamWorks. Katzenberg has a standard he expects Disney animation to operate at. Uh, and then you have Howard Ashman, who is writing the lyrics for the songs. Ashman has a, a standard that he wants to operate on. Uh, you have this creative force of people working together. Artists and creators who are operating at a level that the people who are trying to remake what they did just can't operate at. They're not Howard Ashman. They're not Jeffrey Katzenberg. They're not these people. That's not who's there right now. And you see this. It's interesting. I think you can see Corley's. This, this goes across just creativity uh, and, and Alan Menken and Ashman making those, making the little mermaid, making beauty and the beast. By the way, I think of the old style Disney movies, beauty and the beast is the peak. It's the pinnacle. I, it, when you grow up in a world after beauty and the beast comes out, I, I, I feel sorry for you because I remember the first time I went to see that movie and just the artistry of that movie, the attention to detail, the love that was poured out into that movie by everybody that was a part of it. Uh, it you just see a level of artistry and commitment to excellence that can only be achieved by talented people who are pushing themselves their hardest to produce something great. That's not who's running Disney now. And it's absurd to believe that they could give us anything like what was given to us before. It's insulting to believe that these people have anything to offer the same way that those people did to add to it. They're not, they're not giving us their best. They're trying to make money off of something that was already done. And they're trying to make money off of our nostalgia for it because we were the kids and now we have our own kids. So we're going to take our kids to see this new thing. And it's a, it's a cynical money grab. But the part of it that, that I think when you're talking about Mencken and Ashman and Kassenberg and Eisner and all these people that were running Disney at that time is that it's not even just that they're, motivations are wrong is that they're trying to recreate something that they never could have created to begin with. They don't have the chops. They're just not those people, right? If you want to make another, it's a small world, you you're going to fail. Do you know why? Cause you're not Mary Blair. You can't make what Mary Blair could make. Make your own thing. Go create your own thing if you want to do that. But you can't recreate what somebody else has done who's better than you at what they do. That's just not how it works. When you have artists who are committed to, to excellence and greatness, create something beautiful and wonderful for the world, and then later on you decide that you are just going to keep making that thing over and over again, which happens with the sequels, right? Why were Disney sequels so awful? Because those people didn't care anymore and they weren't involved anymore. And then you see the creative drop. And we see this every time. 
why was Pixar so, so successful early on? Who are the people that were there at Pixar? John Lasseter, Brad Bird. You had these creative people that were there that were just on another level. Andrew Stanton, they were operating on another level and they were doing it with this incredibly high standard, right? They, what they produced had to be right. And if it wasn't right, they trashed it. I remember reading and, and listening to animators they were working on the Incredibles. They were complaining about the standard they were being held to because they said, we did all this work and we're doing all this work and we spend all of these hours and months doing this and then we bring it in and we're told it's not good enough. One of the things that I think is so fascinating, let's go back to the Incredibles and a discussion about a kiss between Mr. Incredible and, Miss Inc and, and Elastigirl. I remember hearing Brad Bird talk about how important it was to him when he was talking to animators for them to understand how lips pull apart when two people kiss each other. He's like, there, there has to be, as they pull apart, some resistance to that pulling apart. Their lips should stretch just the slightest little bit because that's what happens when two people kiss. As they pull apart, they don't just come apart clean that there is a, a pulling, like a resistance to the pulling apart. That's the attention to detail that Brad Bird was operating on. That second, that moment, that, that little thing right there, as their lips come apart, you better get that right. No, not a single false note in this movie. Dude, you want to know why the live actions are just garbage? Even if they had the same commitment to excellence, they're not the same people. And any artist out there knows, anybody who works in an art form knows how important it is, how, how, how much the artist matters, how much they mean to it. If you, I remember going one time to an exhibit and I can't, this is, this is the sad part of it. I can't even remember who the other guy was. It was, it was Monet and his buddy. I can't remember his name. And it was at the high museum and it was, they were, but they would have pictures on the wall. Here's what Monet painted. And here's what his buddy that was there with him painted. And his buddy, by the way, was a famous artist. I'm just not that great with famous artists. The sad thing was though, he was a famous artist, but he wasn't Monet. And when you would see a picture of there's Monet's work and there's his friend's work and they were sitting on the same hill at the same time. And I wonder which one of them changed things to make it look the way it did because Monet and him were seeing the world in entirely different ways. And the way that Monet presented his landscapes, his boat, his water, everything was just better. It was just better. I felt bad for that guy. I was like, that would just be the worst thing in the world, being the guy on the hill next to Monet, your buddy. As I'm painting away and saying, hey, what are you doing, buddy? And he shows me, I'm like, oh, God, I'm just, I'm terrible. Why, why am I working next to you? I need to work with Pizarro. There you go. Thank you. JD is an art student, so he does know this stuff better than me. He has sent me the answer, uh, Pizarro. So, yeah, it's, it's I just, it, it, you feel it, right? The artistry that fed the golden years of Disney's production and Pixar and anything that you have like that, it's just an absence of artists. And that's what It's a Small World Remains for me. People say, oh, the song is so stupid. I get so sick of the songs. Like, it, it has become a litmus test for me. Just sit back, ride through, and absorb the brilliance of Mary Blair, and just be quiet and let the kids have fun because they like watching the kids play, right? 
it's a world doesn't revolve around you. Just let them have fun and, and, and just appreciate the artistry behind it. All right. So now let's move on. Um, that's that, that covers an important thing that I wanted to cover. And then a rant about something that's not important, but is important to me because you know, I am equal parts stupid. And then whatever else I am, I don't know, I don't know how to categorize the rest, the rest of it. Okay. So let's get on to our three things. The book is tearing us apart. Uh, it is written by Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. I have it right here again. I, I encourage you now here. Oh, here's what I want to say before we, as we jump into this discussion of this book, number one, as I said, I'm not going to go over every little detail of the book because I want you to buy the book and, and it's their information. It's their property. It's their intellectual rights. What I want to do is share some of the themes of the book and talk to you about what it's talking about and, and what's meant there, because I was actually speaking recently and I mentioned the book in front of a, a college audience and one of the students asked me, how, how does abortion harm things? Explain that to me. So I got to take a moment and talk about that concept. So uh, we're going to talk about three, as close to three things as I can get in talking about Tarek's part. Number one thing I want to talk about is what do we mean when we say abortion or what do they mean when they say abortion harms everything? I agree with them, by the way, even though I don't talk about it in those terms, when I'm giving presentations and when I talk about just focusing on what is the unborn, what is the fetus? Is it one of us? Is it a full member of the human family? If it is, how do we allow to treat it? Uh, th what they want to talk about is the entire area. And I agree with them that it harms everything. And here's why, because even though there are people, let's take Freakonomics. Freakonomics tried to make the case that, that abortion was the solution to violent crime, that, that as abortion rose, violent crime descended. And then they said that those numbers overlap so that the explanation for the, the reduction of violent crime in the United States is direct, directly proportional to the rise of abortion in the United States, which by the way, I think is a horrible argument, right? Because, and we'll get into that in a second here <laughs> about why I think that's a horrible argument. And it's been widely criticized by people who know much far more about how that data was gathered than I do. It's not, difficult to find criticisms of that position uh, by people who say, look, they made mistakes in gathering the data. The way that they approached it was wrong. Uh, it doesn't make any sense as an explanation for the decline of violent crime, the way that they say that it does. But this became popular because Freakonomics was popular. And then people who support abortion ran around saying abortion reduced violent crime. Abortion was supposed to produce for us every child a wanted child. That was, that was originally what they said, every child a wanted child. And so the idea of it was that abortion was going to be good for society. And even in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they talk about the opportunity, the, the, uh, we think probably Kennedy, who's the lead author of it, was talking about how women got to make these choices in their life based on their ability to get abortions. And we're looking for the idea of financial equality. You've had uh, second wave feminists who talked about the idea of abortion, getting rid of the disparity of cost between having children where women had to pay an inordinate amount of the cost because they had to carry the pregnancy and then raise the child. And the man was free to do other things. Abortion frees women up from this disparity that is created uh, by biological facts and gives women the opportunity to effectively operate within the economic field as men and not have the same problems that women experienced prior to the rise of abortion. So they argue that there's all these goods that go along with it. Now, here's why I agree with tearing us apart, even before getting into the book, because you just, you can't have a world 
built on injustice operate correctly. I think the best arguments demonstrate that from the moment they come into existence, the unborn are fully human. And I think that we owe our fellow human beings a basic duty and responsibility, not the least of which is just to withhold lethal action from them. Just don't kill your neighbor. You know, as a Christian, I understand love your neighbor as yourself as the highest ideal by which I can operate with my fellow man. And loving my neighbor as myself means I should probably initially just refrain from killing them. That's the beginning of our relationship. I meet you. I don't kill you. I let you continue to live. Hopefully you give me the same consideration. Uh, So when we're talking about the harm that I said initially, I would say that even with those other arguments coming out, that ultimately abortion is a harm. What I'm saying is, is that a just society can't be built on injustice. Even if abortion were the cost for purchasing all of these great things, it's immoral and the cost is too high. Even, even if it could purchase equality for women, even if it could purchase uh, lower crime rates, even if it could purchase those things, what I'm saying is that the act of abortion is unjust. And so the grounding or the foundation of these goods, we're told, is, un, is injustice, and which means that it, it ultimately can't sustain itself. It, it, it harms everything. If the purchase for doing, and there's a great quote uh, in here from um, a man by the name of Lejeune, who was the first person to to discover the uh, uh, genetic nature of Down syndrome. And he talked about the idea of there is a cost to having people like this in our society. There is a human cost, a medical cost, a social cost. And he ends the quote saying something to the effect of, and it just turns out that this cost is the minimum cost to maintain our humanity. For us to continue to be human beings, we are required to pay this cost. It's not saying that having people that require special attention doesn't come with a cost. What he's saying is, I recognize that cost, and I see that cost is the minimum that we're required to pay to be human beings. Because to do anything less is to sacrifice our humanity. And that's what I'm saying. I start out from the position that, and in, in, I talked about Charles James Fox before, who was a British abolitionist, uh, not Thomas Clarkson, not William Wilberforce. And what I mean by that, not a deeply religious guy, not somebody that was driven by concepts of virtue. Uh, he just hated slavery. And he also hated the American experiment and was for the colonialists being able to get away. He also hated King George III. So he hated, he was motivated by a lot of interesting things. But but one of the things that I love Charles James about Charles James Fox is because when he was talking about abolition of slavery and somebody said to him, without slavery, the American experiment fails, his response was, if the American experiment fails without slavery, then let it fail. And if there's a huge financial impact on Britain because of that, then let us pay it. Let it fail. Let it fall. If our world requires that to exist, then let our world die and let's build one with a foundation of justice and not built on injustice and the dehumanizing of an entire class of people. Even if it could deliver, the cost is our humanity and it's too high. But the point of this book is it's not delivering. The case that Anderson and DeSanctis are trying to are making is that it's failing on every level, which is, by the way, what I would expect when you talk about this level of injustice. And so they want to say that what abortion, 
when they say harms everything, they mean that the sowing into our society, the moral justifications for abortion, and at the same time, making it a prerequisite for certain people to be advocates for this thing has harmed everything. It has torn apart every aspect of our society. That harms the unborn, harms women and the family, harms equality and choice, harms medicine, harms the rule of law, harms politics and the democratic process, harms the media and popular culture. Those are your chapters right there. They make a case in each one of those that it harms every one of them. Now, I would say that as far as when I'm reading like philosophical books, whether pro-abortion or pro-life, whether I'm talking about Kate Greasley's arguments in support of abortion or uh, Christopher Kayser's arguments against them, those books are written at a very deep philosophical level where they're taking an incredibly deep dive into very specific questions. That's not this book. That is, this is a tight book. So you can see that it's not, not huge mass. It's not a doorstop, right? It's not a brick. So you're not getting deep, deep dives into any of these things, but they do give you the resources to make your own dive deeper. They give you all of the, the proper sourcing and, and links to things so that you can take it upon yourself to make a deeper investigation of the claims that they're making. What they're doing is making a case. Harms the unborn, harms women and family, harms equality and choice, harms medicine, harms rule of law, harms politics and democratic process, harms the media and popular culture. It harms every aspect of our life. Nothing goes untouched ultimately by this area. And it should. If you're talking about the unjust destruction of human life on a scale of a million a year in the United States, roughly, we don't have great numbers right now because of the rise of medical abortion over the last three or four years, COVID muddy, the waters access. Uh, it's just been, it's been different, more difficult to get the data that we used to be able to get, but let's just say a million it used to be 1.3 million reliably for about a decade. Now it's about a million a year. Let's say um, if we're killing a million human beings a year in the United States alone for the practice of abortion, 40 to 50 million worldwide. And that is the unjust taking of innocent human life. And we're trying to build a society on these ideas. Then it should tear us apart. It should negatively impact everything. We should see that. That is what I expect to see. Not the promises of a golden future that we've been given, but the reality of things not working the way we expected them to work. So, so what I want to do then is I want to talk about uh, a couple of the different areas and just touch on them briefly with a, a focus so that we can, so you can understand the way that they're making their case. I encourage everyone who's interested in this subject to buy this book, engage the argument that they're making because they do provide evidence and links to their past work. And both of these people have written volumes on this in the past and are, and are both educated and capable of, of deep, deep reflection and thought on these areas and have provided it elsewhere. That's just not in this one. They're just trying to give you as much information as they possibly can, which by the way, as a side note, is why I think that this type of presentation in front of an audience has a weakness. It's just too much. You can't go deep enough into anything and you have to talk about so much. And that's what I used to do. The first time I tried to talk about abortion, I tried to do something like this book 
in a 40 minute presentation. And it was exhausting to me and to the audience. And I'm not sure that anybody could fully understand the point I was trying to make. And so they're trying to make a quick point with resources for you to go deeper into every different issue so that they can show you that their thesis stands abortion harms everything. So I want to talk though for a second, as we're getting into this, um, taken aside, I, I reread Oliver Twist recently. And, and, and why I wanted to talk about this in light of abortion harms everything is because uh, Dickens was making a similar case with the book Oliver Twist. It's interesting. I think it's been so long since I read it that, and, and it's, by the way, it, its treatment of Fagan and its original work is just terrible. And what I mean by that is that, it, and this is this has brought up a new thing for me as well, uh, you, you see people say, this is as it was originally published, usually bragging about this. By the, so I got the book as it was originally published, thinking, great, I get the original work. Then I read the book and I was telling my wife, man, he calls Fagan the Jew a lot. It's a little oppressive, right? I mean, I think he calls him the Jew far more than he calls him Fagan. He just constantly refers to him as the Jew. And that, that doesn't feel right. Uh, that especially since Fagan is far and away or way not far Two, there's two characters in the book that are far and away worse than everybody else in the book. And Fagan is one of them. So to have this obviously deeply evil individual and to constantly call him the Jew got a little tiring as I was reading it. Uh, and here, that's where I was saying, I, I learned that it's not always best to read the original work. Uh, Dickens was approached by Jewish fans and they said, we don't feel like, this is good. <laughs> we don't feel like the way you've treated Fagan is, is good. And your constant reference to him as the Jew and Dickens immediately, his immediate response was to defend his work. And I think if I remember correctly, his immediate response was to tell them that what makes Fagan evil isn't that he's Jewish, but he is Jewish. And I didn't want to back down from that. And, they, and their response was, eh, <laughs> you you seem to have books where people are saved, redeemed, where they, they rise above their circumstances. And then you have this intransigently evil character, this, char this character that cannot be discouraged or dissuaded from his evil. And you call him the Jew like a thousand times <laughs> during the course of the book. Uh, so maybe not. And, and, and so what's interesting to me then is that Dickens then reflects on this and decides they're right. And so he goes back and fixes it in his mind so that later publications weren't burdened with this constant reference to the Jew. We're not just talking about Fagan. So for somebody then to go and, and republish it as it was originally published, knowing that Dickens didn't like that, that he ultimately came to believe that his Jewish critics were correct and that his treatment of Fagan and constantly referencing him as the Jew was, was wrong and borderline anti-Semitic. Uh, so it was, he fixed it and then they refixed it back to what Dickens didn't like anymore. And so I was, I, I feel weird then about, okay, maybe, maybe as originally published, isn't always the greatest thing. So, but let's get past that. Dickens, uh, Oliver Twist. I would have told you, I thought it was a story about one kid and probably from the musical and things like that. I was like, Oliver Twist is a story about a lost kid uh, and, and not even a particularly strong one, right? Uh, you know, you have the, please, sir, may I have some more, uh, that, that little pathetic guy. Oh, and then he's 
caught up into all of this intrigue and, uh, you know, Dodger, uh, looks after him to some degree or another, but Dodger doesn't look after him at all. Dodger looks after Dodger. Uh, and so rereading it as an adult helped me to see something. Oliver Twist wasn't writing a story about a lost kid. He was writing a story about a dysfunctional society. By the way, he says repeatedly through the story, Oliver Twist is not weak. He is strong. He is placed because he has no living mother into a system that is so terrible that children are just dying. And the people who are responsible for looking after them don't care. And it, you get into Jonathan Swift sort of language there because Dickens doesn't care as he relates it from the story, which we know he does. That's the whole point of him telling the story, but he talks almost flippantly about the death of all of these children who are just being destroyed by the system that they've put in that was supposedly developed by a Christian nation that was supposed to be looking after them about the insincerity of the people who were in charge of these kids about the corruption in the system and how it just grinds and destroys these kids. As a matter of fact, when Oliver goes and says, may I have some more, it's a revolutionary moment in the book. Nobody ever asked for more because they were afraid of the people who were feeding them. And they knew that those people were keeping profits and feeding them the least they possibly could for him to go back and say more was a moment of revolutionary, uh, I mean, just it was, a, it was a beautiful moment in the book, right? So he, he constantly tells us that Oliver Twist is, is a strong character. He also tells us that if you can't love Oliver Twist, if you can't be moved by what's happened to him, you need to check your humanity. And then from there, not only do the systems fail him and the courts fail him and every institution that was put in place there fail him, and yet he continues to survive. He goes on to Oliver Twist getting lost in the streets of London, which he writes about. This is something that happened. Um, Jam Barry and the Peter Pan books. I remember reading also that that was inspired by the same thing. These concept of lost boys, as much as we think of the lost boys as either vampires, I guess, if you grew up in a certain age, or the lost boys on Peter Pan's on, on um Neverland, the lost boys were, were children that just got lost in London to be abused, to be oppressed, to be used. They just disappeared into crowds. You could have your child with you and you could be going through a crowd and somebody could snatch them up and you would never see them again. And they were, Oliver Twist is talking about this, the failure of London to be able to protect their own children. Uh, and so the story of Oliver Twist, as you see him go through this, is the story of a broken land, not a lost human being of a broken system that can't protect the youngest and most vulnerable in it. In a real way, then tearing us apart is the same thing. It's the story of a broken system told through chapters, looking at very briefly at each one, giving us opportunity to see more. It's saying that this is failing us on every level. And we need to attend to this, not just to rescue the unborn from the act of abortion, but to rescue the entire culture. The entire system is victim 
to the inhumanity that has been bred through the practice of abortion. So let's look at one that I, and this one uh, we're going to talk about because harm's unborn. We talk about that a lot. I talk about that a lot in the show. We talk about that a lot. Uh, women and families. I said, it's not going to be three things because I just can't. Let me just say this. There's a lost episode of this podcast just recently recorded. I was terrible. I saw them scrap it. We're not going to do it. I'm sharing this with you. This is actually 9B that we're doing here. Uh, 9A was was a mess. But one of the things we did mention in that that I think is worth mentioning is that what has happened in many places in the United States is that men have been given, have been empowered to serve a role that is destruction, destructive to the lives of the women in their world. Uh you see this, I think, I mentioned it in the last episode in reference to OnlyFans. I, you see this also with the act of abortion. Uh, no more, I think, clear for us in, in recent than the recent revelation by Britney Spears that Justin Timberlake pressured her into getting an abortion. And here, you're, that's a good place to start where we're going to look at how does it harm everything, right? So Britney Spears talked about being 19, I believe, when she was 19 and Justin Timberlake was 20. Uh, in her memoir, and she said that she was pregnant. She said she wanted to have the child. That she had always thought that they were going to have children together. So this was just starting earlier than they'd planned. He did not want the child. She describes it as having pressured him, pressured her into having an abortion because he wasn't ready to be a father and he was not happy <laughs> about what was going on. Uh, and then she talks about how this moment stuck with her. Now let's say, how does this harm everyone? When number one, let's look at it when we're talking about abortion harms, women and families. Number one, by any account, understanding how she under how she relays what happened to her, Britney Spears was harmed by this situation. She was harmed by a world that told her she didn't have to have a baby right now. She could pursue her future. She was harmed by a man who she wanted to have his children who because abortion was ready and available and a protected right and celebrated by so many people in this country was able to pressure a 19-year-old girl into getting an abortion she didn't want because he wasn't ready to be a father. He abandoned his responsibility and duties as a father of that child so that he could pursue whatever he wanted to pursue in his musical career. And hey, I kind of like Justin Timberlake, some of his music, but I don't like any of it enough that I think it was worth killing his kid over. Nothing he has contributed to the world was worth that. Every time some celebrity, by the way, says that, if I hadn't been able to get an abortion, I wouldn't have been able to make this movie or this TV show or sing this song. So what? It's not that good of a song. There's never been a song that was that good. That I'm glad you, I am so glad you had the opportunity to kill your child before I was born. I would have hated to have missed that song. It really isn't that big of a deal. You really didn't contribute that much to the world. It's not that earth shattering that you were able to do this. I get that you wanted to do it. So here we see the failure of it, the failure of him as a man to the woman who wanted to have his children, the failure to her from the community that empowered that man to pressure her to an abortion that she didn't want, the pain that she felt that she's still writing about it all these years later. There it is. As we begin to, to launch into this conversation, how is abortion tearing us apart? 
it harms the family. And, and another thing it does is it sets often sets the mom and her goals up against her unborn child so that they are, I remember speaking somewhere in this, this pro-life woman said, I reject any discussion of abortion that pits the mother against her child, because that is the tragedy of so much of the discussion that we have about this issue where we have, it's one or the other, it's you or it's me. You get to live and I lose everything or you have to die so that I can pursue my dreams. Mom's hopes and aspirations, professional goals, all pitted against her child. What on earth have we done in our conversations about motherhood and family that we have gotten to this place where we allow this to be a normal understanding of that. So it, it breaks this generational understanding of what, what our purpose and point is in life. It makes mothers worse mothers. It makes fathers worse fathers. It makes men worse partners. It makes, I mean, it just harms every, and that's just touching one thing and not, you know, Britney Spears is obviously not in this book, but that's why I wanted to talk about that is launching into some of the, and they talk about other things, but that's just part of the idea of how women and families are harmed through abortion. But let's get into harms, equality, and choice. Let's move past that families and let's get into the class they are making. I was at a meeting downtown uh, at the Capitol. So we're actually we're in the Senate building next to the Capitol here in Atlanta. Uh, and we were talking about an event that's coming up next year, a march uh, attached to the March for Life organization out of Washington, D.C., and they're working with a local organization to do a march that is intended to draw attention to the laws and the legal battles that are going on over abortion nationally and in the state of Georgia. And this one woman, black woman, said, the majority of abortions in the state of Georgia are performed on black women. And my son looked at me while he and I were talking, and I thought, Oh, you know, this is the age of Google and the internet. I can look this up. This is no big deal, right? Hold on. So while she's talking, she's making this case because she wanted to make sure that everybody remembered in our own home state who the victims of abortion were. And so as she said that, I pulled it up and I got this group Statista or Statista or whatever, uh, distribution of reported legal abortions in Georgia by race and ethnicity Non-Hispanic black, 66.5% of abortions in the state of Georgia. Uh, That's depressing, right? I remember one time here, we were teaching a class to father. We did, we were teaching, it was one of the first classes where we worked with fathers to be. Here, here what I mean is we recorded this at First Care Women's Clinic here uh, in Cobb County, formerly Cobb Pregnancy Services, a very large very well-equipped, very powerful pregnancy center where we do things like not only uh, do we counsel women to keep their children, we give them classes, we give them baby needs, up to 4T, I believe, right now. We give mothers clothing, we can help them get jobs, we, we teach them. And then we opened up a program where we're working with the fathers as well. And I was the first one to teach one of those classes, I think, when we first tried it. Uh, and I remember in that room talking to these guys, and this one guy and I were chatting, this young black man, and he was talking to me about abortion and he was explaining to me the numbers of abortion within the black community in the United States. And as he went through the numbers and he just all brilliant, just off the top of his head, just sharing all this stuff with me. He finally gets to this point where he said, so that's about half. He said half of what? He said about half of all 
black pregnancies end in abortion in the United States. About half our people. And he just stopped. So overwhelmed with emotion at that point of just what he said. And I checked it out later, and he's about right. At the time when he and I were talking about half of black pregnancies in the United States and then abortion. So when we talk about it harms equality, and one of the things that has been leveled, I was asked multiple times by somebody to respond to this argument that starting at Reagan's ascent to presidency and after Roe v. Wade, that the main driver for the pro-life movement as it changed from a Catholic thing to a Southern Baptist and Republican thing was racism. The pro-life movement is rooted in racism. They said that ultimately what white people became afraid of is if white people keep getting abortions, then they're going to be fewer white people in the world. Okay, well, looking at that same data point, by the way, that uh, non-Hispanic white abortions in the state of Georgia make up about 19.5% versus 66.5% of the black community in the state of Georgia, my home state. I told, you know, in, in response to that, I've told, I've been asked about it a couple of times. Like, look, the, the pro-life movement is old. I mean, old, much older than Reagan, <laughs> really old, much older than the Republican Party. Uh, you know, the Civil War, You had, after the Civil War, you had a, a pro-life movement that was driven by Civil War doctors. Uh, in the early 19th century, you had a, a pro-life movement that was driven by editorialists uh, in major newspapers around the country and by women's centers who were taking in women who were being abandoned by men who, for the first time, because of the urbanization of America, were living in places where they could do things in secret. We talked about this a lot of this with Leah Savis when she was on in her, her book, The Story of Abortion in America. I would recommend you go and pull that um, interview and listen to some of that because we discussed this at length there. Uh, it's it's a fascinating story, but the pro-life movement was going long, long, long before Roe v. Wade. So th- to say, even if you were to make a clear case that those particular people had disgusting motivations, I don't know what that has to do with the pro-life case. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with the way that I argue about it, because I don't argue that... Uh, you know, Republican politicians are the saviors of the world and that we should, I argue that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. So let's get back to this question of equality then. How does the practice of abortion, which disproportionately destroys the black community in America before they're born, 50%, as I'm saying, close to 50% of all births, all pregnancies in the black community end in abortion and in the state of Georgia, 66 and a half percent of abortions performed being performed on black women. How does that help with equality? How on earth could you say that the pro-life movement is racist when I'm saying that shouldn't be happening? There ought to be more black children being born. The black population of the United States ought to be much larger. You ought to have a much more powerful voice in the economy and in politics because there should be a lot more black people in the United States. And I don't see, I'm not one of those people that see more as a problem. I know there's people out there that love to talk about that we have a population explosion problem, which is, we'll do a whole segment. I think we may have already done a whole segment on that, but we'll revisit it at some point if we haven't. Put that on the docket for the next show. 
Episode 10, we will cover the, the, the population explosion problem because that bugs me so much. Again, we'll revisit it if we've already visited. It's, it's, it's worth talking about more than once. I don't see more people as a problem. I see people as problem solvers. I see people that can work together to make the world a better place. I see more people leads to solutions. More people working on the problems of humanity means that humanity is going to have more solutions. We have more manpower. And for, for a group that is, I remember one time hearing a panel uh, of, of black intellectuals discussing the fact that because they represent such a small part of the United States population, they don't have the luxury to split their voting block up and to have a, a varying voices politically within the black community. They need to have all of their voices in one group so that they can look after the power of the, uh, of the, the, the good of their community. Okay, well, this was the solution to that problem, man. More black people in the United States, more black children, more black people living in their community together, working to build them and make them better. Not fewer, more. Because right now it looks like abortion is aimed at you. And it's harming equality because there aren't as many black people as there ought to be, which means your political voice is not as large and is not as powerful. Your economic ability to start your own communities and run your own communities is not what it ought to be. You don't have the manpower that you would have had abortion not hit you harder than every other community in the United States. Abortion harms equality. And that's a case that they make in that chapter as well. And they give more data on it. Another thing in the way that it harms equality is that it harms those women. It harms women as far as equal move. The number one reason, by the way, that children are aborted worldwide statistically is because they're women, because they're females. Let me talk to one, use formerly the one child policy. I think that they have graciously extended it up to the two and three child policy now in China. When they were faced with you will only have one child or you will be given economic sanctions against you by the government. And they knew that the financial possibilities and social possibilities for men were higher in their culture than they were for women. How did the black community or not? How did the Chinese community respond? They responded by aborting their female children before they were born. And that is the largest population in the world responsible by the way, for more abortions than anybody else. At one point when we were at like 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade, they were over 450 million since the one child policy had been enacted in China alone. Staggering. And all, most of those are being done because they're having a female. Now, India also has a problem with this because the financial responsibilities and duties that go with women are different in the Indian culture and India another second largest population on earth and the place I, I wrote an article about this many years ago where we were talking about the idea of the disproportionate birth rate of men versus women of boys versus girls in India driven by sex selective abortion which by the way our opponents on the other side in the United States can't even bring themselves to condemn fully they're not capable of saying you should not be aborted because you're a girl how is this serve equality if the number one worldwide target of abortion is girls, women, because they would rather have boys for multiple different reasons. 
in multiple different places. And there's evidence, by the way, that this kind of sex-selective abortion is growing in the United States and Great Britain now. Not at the levels that you see necessarily in China or India, but growing. How do we know that? Because more boys are being born than girls, and that just doesn't happen naturally. So when you start to see that skew, statistically speaking, that there are now more boys being born. I remember talking to somebody many, many years ago, and I was saying, it was funny, it was when this first started to show up, and I was trying to help them to understand what was going on. I said, you know what? The percentages change. If you have a girl first, the, per the chances percentage-wise that you're going to have a boy on the second child is now 60% or 55%. And then if you have two girls, the chances you're going to have a boy with your third child goes up to some absurd percent. I can't remember how high it was. And they had, had only girls that go, oh, so, I mean, I should keep having kids because that means the percentages go up. So no, that means people are aborting girls when they're on their third kid because they're wanting to have a boy. That's what that means. Because the statistical probability of having a boy or girl is set. It is what it is. So if we start to see those numbers skew, it's because people aren't letting girls be born. Not because you had all of a sudden some weird situation where boys are being born at a much higher percentage rate than girls. That's not why it changes. It changes because we make decisions about who is and is not allowed to be born. And we decide girls are not allowed to be born. It hurts equality. And then finally, under hurting equality, let's talk for a second about people with Down syndrome or anybody that's facing medical issues, medically fragile human beings. I was asked recently, as a justification for abortion. People with particular issues are expensive. What if you just don't have enough money to have a child that has special needs? And I told them, I have a medically fragile child. I have a type one diabetic child. She's now 19. I don't think she would like me calling her a child. She's been on this show. She will be again. <laughs> so, and here's what I know from being a member of the medically fragile community for parents, you can't possibly have enough money to protect yourself from the world, right? We should be, as this comes out, we're, we're getting close to the Christmas season. For my wife, the Christmas season starts on November 1st. So by the time this comes out, we're in the middle of it <laughs> for, for her. November 1st, it is Christmas clothes and Christmas music and Christmas shows for me until the first of the year, unless I'm watching so on my own at the gym. Okay, it was it was the failing of Scrooge as he's breaking up with Belle in the uh, the book Christmas Carol when she he says hey, the reason that he is so passionately amassing a fortune why he wants to have so much money and why he won't spend any of it is because the fortune is his protection from the world. And let me tell you something, man. I know rich people and I know poor people and I know people everywhere in between that have had medically fragile children and there is not enough money in the world to protect yourself from how much it costs. Medical costs in the United States can just get really weird. It's strange about what they decide to pay, charge you a lot for and what they decide to give you for free. None of it makes any sense. The whole system is completely broken, but here's the deal, man. If you have a medically fragile child, you will never have enough money to protect yourself from the cost of their health care. But here's another encouraging thing, as I told that person, you would be surprised how many institutions, how many individuals and how many people out there have made resources available to help with medically fragile children, want to participate as a community in taking care of them. 
they, they, going back to Dr. Lejeune, they see it as the minimum cost of our humanity to take care of those who need help being taken care of. And he was speaking specifically about children with Down syndrome. In Iceland and Denmark, they celebrate the idea that they have almost rid their countries of Down syndrome altogether. They have made it so Down syndrome is not a part of their communities. Like 1% of children with Down syndrome are allowed to be born, and those are usually because they were misdiagnosed. They didn't cure Down syndrome. That's not what happened. They killed every single unborn child that was diagnosed with Down syndrome that they could. Every last one of them. And they're bragging about it. Celebrating it. We have defeated Down syndrome by destroying those with Down syndrome. And let's completely, there's a great book uh, called Choosing Down Syndrome. Uh, and it's written by a pro-choice guy uh, who is making a case because he has a son with, uh, with Down syndrome. He's making a case that we should allow them to be born. And then there he gives all sorts of statistics about, uh, I think I want to say 98 to 99% of people who are living with Down syndrome report being happy with their life and satisfied uh, with themselves, pride, so proud of themselves, uh, feeling good about who they are. 98% of parents, I think 97 to 98% of parents with children with Down syndrome report being happy. Uh, 98 to 99% of siblings of children with Down syndrome report being grateful for having their brother or sister in their life and that their life is better for having them in their life. Everybody, almost everybody, far more than by the general public, by the way, almost everybody involved with this says, not only was it not a detriment to their life, not only was it not a burden on their life, but it was a good, a positive thing. They love being alive. They love their children. They love their siblings. And yet, we have countries bragging about having almost eliminated these people altogether from society as if they have some great medical victory. Abortion harms equality because it teaches us that some people are not living lives worth living and that the best thing that we can do for them is to kill them before they're born so that they and we don't have to endure. There is, and I, I, I used to have it saved and I don't have it any longer. It, it is the most, one of the most troubling things I've ever watched. I believe it was in Iceland and it was a medical doctor talking to a one of the last people in Iceland with Down syndrome, drawing on a whiteboard, explaining to this young man how expensive people like him are so that he can understand how the world is better off without people like him. And excuse me for a moment, because I don't always talk like this, but I remember watching that the first time and I thought, what the hell is wrong with you? What happened to you that you don't understand how, how horrible what you're doing is right now? It harms equality because it teaches us that some people just don't have a right to be born. And going back to that, where I was talking about the numbers of people that were killing before they're born, the idea that people run around saying, oh, we've reduced violent crime. How do we reduce violent crime? We killed the people who were most likely to be violent criminals before they're born. 
probably killed a lot of other people who weren't going to be violent criminals. I mean, even, even if you accept that, which I don't accept, even if you accept that and you don't, you don't quibble with their statistics, they're like, we killed a lot of people, a lot of people before they were born. And some of them were probably going to be violent criminals. We don't know, but some of them probably will. And that's how we got rid of violent crime. Yeah. Well done. Good job. So that's the kind of case they're making and, and much more in depth with much more, uh, but they're taking, when they talk about abortion harms equality, uh, that's what they're talking about. Um, I want to end on abortion harms, the rule of law. Very quickly. I'd like to talk about something today. We'll do both of these together. Harms medicine, and harms the rule of law. We kind of lump these together for the last thing that we're going to talk about. Uh, let's go back to many, many years ago. I remember reading an article it was talking about the ethics of using Nazi research. They were talking, because this was a thing that was struggled with, right? Nazis did terrible research in camps, in death camps, particularly twins. If they ever got a hold of twins, they were horrible to them, twin children. And so they did this terrible research on this life that they thought was expendable. And they would say, look, they're going to die anyway. We're not going to let them live, so we might as well profit from them. And this is an interesting thing I'd never thought of that I heard a doctor talking about because they were saying one of the, one side of the argument was that sure what they did was evil, but we can't let their research go to waste if it will profit humanity. And this doctor said something that has stuck with me since I read it. He said, I don't trust their research. Why would I trust their research? He said at, at the root of proper medical practice and research is a moral understanding that what you do is for the good of humanity without moral accountability and duty, without that responsibility being felt and understood as a doctor, I can't trust the research you're producing. If you're so immoral as to do what you did to that human life, how do I know that you've given me the right data? How do I know that anything that you've said can be trusted and that you're not just trying to prove some point because you've already demonstrated you lack the moral fortitude and clarity to not realize that people shouldn't be your research subjects because you're going to kill them anyway. He said, how do, how do we trust the medical process and scientific process of people whose moral compass is so broken to begin with? You can never trust it. He said, don't give me their data. I don't trust it. I don't trust them because they haven't demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy. They've demonstrated the opposite, actually, that they're not trustworthy. They cannot, their judgment cannot be trusted. Their data cannot be trusted. So when it gets to the idea of how a, a, a loss, losing sight of the value of human life starts to corrupt medicine, I thought that was such a great place to start because I thought there was such clarity from that doctor. How could I ever trust that what you said was right? What you've said is, is dripping with your immorality. Everything about your work is corrupted by your immorality. So if we are at a place, now the case that they make about harming medicine, they focus a lot on medical institutions that used to have a clear cut role in the world who have now expanded their services into being full throated advocates for abortion, no matter what the medical cost of that advocacy is or the practice of abortion is uh, and the dishonesty that comes with that. And they do a great job at making that case, but that's why I wanted to cover that a little bit. But so we're going to do harm's rule of law and practice of medicine together. 
in one lovely, horrifying episode, um, we're going to rehash Kermit Gosnell for a second. Interestingly enough, because the, the memories of human beings are what they are. And because our, our, we're, we're slaves of our own time, I guess, in the sense that oftentimes we just don't have a broad view of the world. I asked a room full of college students recently, how many of you people know who Kermit Gosnell is? Zero. Zero people in the room. This is 2010, people. That wasn't that long ago. But, of course, when you're talking about a college kid in 2010, that kid was, what, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, something like that. This just wasn't a part of their world when this was going on. Not something that they would have focused on or heard about, hopefully. So Kermit Gosnell was a an abortionist in the Philadelphia area. And here, here's the thing. When, when he was in 2010, the, he was raided by the DEA because he was writing Oxycontin scripts out for people, just pumping out scripts for drugs out of his abortion facility. The DEA raided him in 2010, February, I think, of 2010. So um, when they raid him, they find... This man's abortion facility has stray cats wandering around it. Smell of cat urine. They find in the recovery room, recovery chairs, you know, warning for everybody, auditory warning about what we're about to talk about. Uh, Covered with sheets, covered with blood. Unsanitary, disgusting. This is where they would bring the people afterwards. Uh, They discovered rusted tools that were being used, rusty tools being used for abortions. They discovered the body parts of aborted children being saved, various body parts in jars, in the refrigerator and in the cabinets. They, they, they just find, and everything about the medical records in there completely disordered that they found people just completely out of it and find out that the way that they were anesthetizing women was just barbaric. Uh, it, it, it was nothing medical about it. It was just look at her, determine her size, throw this down her throat. Uh, no caution, no concern. That's exactly why he was responsible for the death of at least two women, I believe, uh, who went to his facility at some time or another to get treatment. So here's the thing. The DEA raided him. And then they called people and said, you better get down here. <laughs> yeah, you, there's, there's questions that need to be answered. Okay. Why is this important? Number one, I mean, I think Kermit Gosnell's a serial killer personally. I think he's, when you start to find out the things that he was doing there, uh, how he was performing abortions, he was, he was, I think he operates more as a serial killer than abortionist, but why was he allowed then to, to exist? Cause you say, well, maybe those people didn't know. Here, here's known prior complaints, 1989 and 1993 cited by the Pennsylvania department of health for having no nurse in the recovery room, 1996 censored and fined in both Pennsylvania and New York for employing unlicensed personnel, 1996 pediatrician, Dr. Donald Schwartz 
uh, the head and the former head of the Adolescent Services of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia testified in a 2010 hearing that around 96 or 97, he had hand-delivered a letter of complaint about Gosnell's practice to the Secretary of Health's office and stopped referring patients to the clinic but received no response. 2000, civil lawsuit filed on behalf of the children of Simica Shaw, who had called the clinic the day after an abortion to report heavy bleeding and died three days later of a perforated uterus and bloodstream infection. Uh, 2001, Gosnell claimed to be providing children's vaccines under a program administered by the Health Department Division of Disease Control, but was repeatedly suspended for failing to maintain logs and for storing vaccines in unsanitary and inappropriate refrigerators at improper temperatures. 2001, ex-employee Marcella Chong gave a grand jury would later call a detailed written complaint to the Pennsylvania Department of State, one which she followed up with with an interview in March 2002. 2006, civil lawsuit filed by a patient but dismissed as out of time. The complaint was that Gosnell had been unable to complete an abortion, but then apparently failed or refused to call paramedics or other clinical emergency personnel after the patient had needed help. The patient reported, I really felt like he was going to let me die. In total, 46 known lawsuits were filed against Gosnell over some 32 years of his career. In addition to that, National Abortion Federation sent somebody there, I think that's the name of the organization, sent somebody there to uh, look at the facility because he wanted to become an affiliate member of their, their group. And he was denied entry into that group because his facility was so disgusting. There had been complaints about him, by the way, from uh, to the department of health and from the, the emergency rooms at the local hospitals that were dealing with his patients. Here's the thing. Everybody, everybody knew. Everybody knew. So why didn't they do anything? The only people that didn't know were the DEA. Do you know why Kermit Gosnell is not still practicing abortion and, and dealing drugs and everything else? Because he chose to be an Oxycontin dealer as well. And the DEA shut him down. He wasn't shut down because of all these other things. He was still operating and doing everything that he was doing. And far worse, books have been written about this, articles. You can go find information. The, the level of atrocity that was going on in that place was staggering. And people saw it and heard about it and knew about it. And they did nothing. Why were they protecting him? Because it was all about abortion. You want to know how abortion harms law? That's just one case. One single horrifying case of how Medicine and law are, and the rule of law are both harmed at the same time because nobody wanted to give oversight to what was going on there because to give oversight would have had to admit to the world that the abortion facility in Philadelphia that was operating there was disgusting, was vile and dangerous. And protecting abortion was more important than punishing Gosnell. Making sure that nothing touched the sacred third rail that it continued to run with all of the power that it had to push everything. My gosh, where do you, you don't have any case more clear of the failure of medicine, institution, law, and everything than you do the Kermit Gosnell case. That's just one. That's just one. Like I said, I'm not going to go into every detail. I want you to buy their book and to read their book. But this is the case that they're making. The complete and utter failure of our society to function properly when it comes to dealing with abortion. It corrupts everything it touches. If you believe that every human being ought to, treat, ought to be treated with dignity and respect, then the corrosive effect of this issue on our world is 
incalculable. For some of the reasons that we've already talked about here and many reasons that we haven't. And that's the thesis of this book. And that's the case that they're trying to make. And they make it. It is not, as a review, I would not say I sat around and read this. It wasn't the same as reading Dickens or or um, Jane Austen or Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. It wasn't even the same as reading a really deep philosophical point or book. It wasn't a, a joy. As a matter of fact, it's really hard. But what it is, is it's a tremendous resource to make that broader claim. I say abortion would be wrong even if it did in some way purchase what seemed to be goods because the price for those goods is too high in the cost of human lives. It's the unjust destruction of innocent human beings. So even if it could procure seeming goods, if it requires us to turn a significant percentage of the population of the United States into killers to do it, it's not worth it. And it means our society is built on unjust grounds. But they're making the case that it's not even procuring anything good. It's harming every single thing that it gets in contact with undermining all of those institutions, the institution of the individual, the family, the woman, equality, medicine, the rule of law, politics, the democratic process, media and pop culture. It is corrosive on every single level. I don't have time to go into all of it and I wouldn't even if I could buy the book. It's a great argument. They're making their case. Engage, even if you disagree with them, engage with their argument. Check out the case that they're making because I think that that is more likely. When I've heard from the other side all the great things that abortion has secured, I've always been skeptical, even though I haven't taken time to go investigate everything because that's just not my focus. Because as I said, I don't care. If you have to kill human beings to get that, you don't get it. We'll find a better way to get it. How about that? We'll become more creative, more life-affirming, and find a better way to reach the ends that you want to, that you want to reach. But I don't want a sterile, safe society completely, you know, with all of this economic equality, if the cost of it is we have to turn moms against their unborn children, fathers against the mothers, uh, and everybody else against each other to purchase this. But I agree. I think this, what their case, the case that they're making seems more likely to me because great injustice doesn't usually produce great things. Great injustice usually starts to show its injustice as it corrodes and bubbles up underneath the things that we thought it wasn't touching anyway. It corrupts everything because it doesn't exist in a vacuum because it has to be supported and protected by somebody. And in this particular case, a disturbing number of people support and protect this one. Powerful people, smart people, influential people, champion it. And it's just awful what it does to humanity. So tearing us apart, how abortion harms everything and solves nothing. This has been episode nine of season two, episode 10. We should be filming next week. It looks like, or, uh, we are going to have, uh, my friend and counselor, professional counselor, Jim Trotty, who is going to come on and we're going to discuss diseases of despair and deaths of despair, particularly in young people. Uh, this idea of what's broken and why is the brokenness manifesting itself in so many people committing suicide or ODing? And, and I, you know, it, I, I wanted somebody, we have talked about suicide before. I think it was the very second episode that we did. We talked with Jonathan Noyes from STR. I love that episode. I wanted to revisit it because the problem's not going away, but I wanted to do it from a different perspective, from a counselor who works every day 
with young people who are struggling with despair. So that's going to be our next episode. Thank you so much for joining us. If you find this podcast in any way enjoyable, please visit us at merelyhumanministries.org and contribute to the cause. Uh, As we head towards the holiday season, happy Halloween. You probably will be hearing that after after this. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving coming up. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. I'm very excited about the Christmas season. I used to, I used to be, I used to be one of those people that's like Christmas doesn't start until the day after Thanksgiving. And then life just became so, so much darker and harder. I decided I need Christmas early. Uh, and, and you know what? All these people like Thanksgiving season isn't over. I'm like, Thanksgiving's not a season. It was never a season. It was always a day. It's a day that we stop and give Thanksgiving. It gets a single day, but it doesn't get a season. I always think, I already think it's weird that we have a whole month of Halloween. Halloween should be a day where you dress up. The fact that everybody's trying to turn their front lawn into a saw, uh, you know, tableau with all these brutal murders and stuff like what? What are you doing, man? It's just a night for kids to dress up. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. But if you can celebrate Halloween for a month, then by God, I'm celebrating Christmas for two. And the lights are going on and the Christmas shirts are breaking out and, and let the music begin because the Christmas season starts very shortly. By the time you're listening to this, I'm sure it will already be upon us. Let Christmas begin. Thank you for joining us.